reading is taken from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 29, and that can be page, found on page uh, 976 of the Church Bibles. I hope I've remembered the right page. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. The second lesson is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and it is on page 1236, page 1236, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. 
Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, my voice, and opens the door, <clears throat> I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this beautiful day and the opportunity to hear from you. I pray that this morning you will open the eyes of our hearts and light a fire within us. Amen. So, I wonder what you like to have on your toast in the morning. Nice spoonful of jam, maybe? Raspberry, strawberry, maybe a bit of blackcurrant or peach. If you've got a really sweet tooth, you might like honey, I suppose. But if you're like me, Marmite is the only topping for your toast that can possibly enhance the hot melted butter. Now, I can see a few people grimacing because Marmite does divide opinion, doesn't it? Not many people sit on the fence. As the advert used to say, you either love it or you hate it. We all have things, don't we, that we're passionate about. Things that you believe are the best or the worst of things. It might be a football team. It might be cricket, she says, looking at Peter. X Factor, politics, your grandchildren. Some things just make you smile and you get a surge of energy just thinking about them. What does that for you, I wonder? Why don't you tell somebody sitting next to you? What are you passionate about? Or are you not? The great thing when you indulge your passion, when you give it some freedom, is that it affects your whole self. When you talk about things that you're passionate about, your face lights up. There were so many smiles in the room just now. Have you ever watched someone's face when they tell you about a new baby in the family? Or have you watched a group of boys discussing last night's football match? They don't just use words. Their whole body is infused with energy. Arms wave about, eyes sparkle. They're animated. Passion. It's energizing. Yesterday, I was listening to the radio as I was driving about, and I heard a young sportsman say, he believed your passions shape your life. He might be right. 
The letter that we have read in the book of Revelation today is to the church in Laodicea. And I'm afraid it's the most critical letter of them all so far. And what is their problem? Well, it's that they have no passion. They're so wrapped up in themselves, so self-satisfied and self-absorbed that they have no passion for God. And that's a terrible thing. Laodicea was a very important city, possibly the most important city in Asia at the time. It straddled the main road from Ephesus in the east to Syria in the west, and so it was commercially, strategically very well placed. It was a great center of banking and finance, one of the wealthiest cities in the world at the time. It was so rich, in fact, that when it was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 61, they refused all external aid from the Roman Empire, and they simply rebuilt it themselves. You're right, they said, we'll just do it. They did it out of their own pockets. Imagine that, a level of wealth so great, it made them powerfully independent. It had a thriving industry in the manufacture of clothing, because the local sheep were actually world famous for the quality of their fine black wool. It was also the home of a significant um, medical center, which was famous for ointment to treat eyes and ears. The very large Jewish community that called Laodicea home were therefore both extremely wealthy people and very, very influential. Perhaps they didn't feel any need for God. But I love about this letter is that in spite of their complete indifference to him, God knows and loves these people so well that he crafts the whole letter around those things that were closest to their hearts. The word pictures might seem a little bit obscure to us in modern day Bath, but these were the things that were closest to the hearts of the people in Laodicea. So God uses them to speak to them in a way that they might really understand. So let's turn back to the letter now. Follow it, if you will, page 1236, and see what it's got to teach us. <clears throat> now, I've never been that important a person, but I have watched people who consider themselves so. And it seems that occasionally people with a lot of power are rather reluctant to listen to others. Who are you to talk to me, they seem to say. God doesn't beat about the bush here. This is a stern letter. And so that we might sit up and take note from the start, we're reminded of the credentials of the one who is speaking. Amen, in Hebrew, is a word that is used to guarantee truth, to indicate that the speaker's words are trustworthy and reliable, so Jesus' words can be counted on, he's saying. Sit up and take note. He is the ruler of all creation, by whom and through whom all things were made. He has ultimate authority to address them, therefore, and he doesn't like what he sees. Two of my children were scouts, 
And they engaged in the 10 tools challenge. I don't know if you're familiar with it in Bath. It's really a big thing over um, the other side of Somerset. It means navigating themselves across Dartmoor, whatever the weather, over difficult terrain with just a map and a compass. Teams of boys and girls must complete the 35 miles on foot, carrying a heavy pack and all they need to survive, and they've got to do it in less than 48 hours. It's an arduous task, both mentally and physically, and water is a most precious resource. It's too heavy to carry lots. Certainly you can't carry enough for two whole days. So it's a very necessary commodity. And when they cross the finish line, all they want to celebrate with is nothing more than a long, cold drink of water. And then a lovely, long, hot bath. Both hot and cold water are useful in their places, you see. Now, the one weakness of this urbane and prosperous town, Laodicea, was their water supply. Not having a good source of their own water, its water was supplied via two aqueducts from nearby towns. They were rich. Making it happen wasn't a problem. 11 miles away, Colosse had a freshwater supply of beautiful, crisp, cold mountain water that was beautiful to drink, and they channeled it down to Laodicea. Of course, by the time it arrived, it had become rather lukewarm and nasty. Slightly closer, six miles away, there was Hierapolis, and that offered a hot mineral spring whose water was great for medicinal purposes, just to soak in if you had aches and pains. But once again, by the time these rich Laodiceans had channeled it to their town, it had lost its essential properties. It had become lukewarm and unpleasant. Who likes a nearly cold bath, after all? And yet, because of the mineral content, it was no good to drink. So, Jesus compared the church to their very own water supply. It wasn't good for any purpose. In rather a shocking image, he says he's so disgusted with them that he just wants to spit them out. There's no charge of heresy here. No persecution, no immorality. Just complete, polite indifference. They've become so self-satisfied, they don't even seem to notice that Jesus is missing. Without noticing it, like their water supply, they've grown lukewarm, passionate about nothing. And this is a grave problem indeed. It seems that just like in the fairy tale, the emperor's new clothes, they've got a real problem with self-perception. They believe they're one thing, when in fact, they're something else altogether. I'm sure you know it, but for those that don't, in the fairy tale, an extremely rich but vain king is duped by some clever crooks into parading himself in a suit that they will make at huge cost, but that can only be seen, they say, by the wisest of men. Of course, who's going to admit they can't see it? In reality, there is no suit at all, of course, and yet the king, believing himself to look the last word in elegance, 
parades before his people completely naked. Understandably, no one likes to say anything until a small child with typical childlike honesty exclaims his surprise that the king is naked. The people of Laodicea have a very inaccurate perception of themselves. They are so proud of their wealth. And yet Jesus sees them as really poor in spirit. This isn't just a rant though. Jesus offers the remedy for the situation. He advises them to buy from him gold refined by fire. He's referring to faith, which in 1 Peter, we're told is far more precious than the finest of gold. Although material wealth is useful, you can't deny it, it can't buy you happiness. It can't buy you health in mind or body, and it cannot be your friend. Theologian William Barclay says, if a man has faith, tried and refined in the crucible of experience, there is nothing which he cannot face, and he is rich indeed. I believe that applies to women too. The Laodiceans are proud also of the luxury garments they produce. I expect they were very well turned out, just like your good selves. But God sees them as spiritually naked. He looks on their hearts and he sees how empty they are. To be stripped naked was considered a true humiliation in the ancient world. Right through the Old Testament, it's how victors punish their opponents in war or conflict. And in contrast, to be finely robed is a sign of honor and acceptance. When the prodigal son returns home, in his love, his father gives him a robe and shoes and even jewelry. Laodicea prides itself on its fine black garments, but just like the emperor in the fairy tale, it's deceiving itself. God sees them as spiritually naked. You can't hide ugliness of spirit with beautiful outer garments, not from God anyway. My grandpa used to say, fine feathers don't make fine birds. Jesus advises them to replace the black finery of which they're so proud with white garments that come from him. True beauty of character, which will radiate from the inside out. The final blow to their false impression of self is for Jesus to accuse them of being blind. In spite of the lucrative trade that they have in eye ointment, Jesus sees them as spiritually blind. They need to allow him to open their eyes and see themselves as they really are. He doesn't say all this simply to destroy them or to be unkind. No, it's rather because he loves them that he wants them to see the truth and make amends. It's often only someone who really loves you who will dare to tell you an uncomfortable truth. And so it is with God. He loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us wandering in error away from him. He comes to us. He pursues us, 
because he loves us and he wants to communicate with us. I wonder if we could have that picture on the screen. Brian, could we do that? Lovely. You might be familiar with this picture by Holman Hunt, and it was painted to illustrate verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's a funny, kind of dark picture, actually. But if you look at it, you will see that the door is overgrown with weeds and brambles, clearly unused for a long time. Jesus is standing at the door, carrying the light of life in his hands to share with you. He's knocking at the door of your life and asking to come in and spend time with you. But you might have noticed the handle to the door, just like 10 Downing Street, is on the inside. Only you can let him in. Only you can choose to open that door because he certainly won't force it open. It is for you to respond to him. He wants to come in and to get to know you better, to linger over a meal together, to be your friend. But first, you must choose to open the door. To acknowledge your own poverty of spirit, your own shame and your own blindness, and to invite Jesus through the door of your life takes courage. But it allows the Holy Spirit to come in and to fill you. It allows him to empower you to change the things that need changing in your life and to make you, little by little, more like Jesus. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that reignites the passion in your relationship with Jesus. For when we focus not on ourselves, but on the love he has for each one of us and our friends and our neighbours, it is almost impossible not to be excited. In the Western developed world, the spirit of our age is to be politely unconcerned about spiritual matters. It's fine, if somewhat quaint, for you to search for faith if you really want to. But we're not encouraged to bother anybody else with it. If you were to believe the media, you might conclude that fine feathers really do make fine birds. Your image is a very important thing. Being seen with the right people, wearing the right clothes, driving the right car, expressing the right opinions. One might hope that life within the church would be a little different. This letter challenges though, is it really? Sometimes as the years go by, we forget that first passion. We become overwhelmed with duties and rotors, with people, commitments, responsibilities, and we forget why we're here. We've become lukewarm. We're here to express our passionate love to Jesus, whom we love because he first loved us. No other reason. 
Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about excitable, being excitable and loud. I'm not advocating modern music and dancing in the aisles, although that's nice for some, sometimes. That's not what I'm talking about today at all. I'm talking about depth of passion, real, absolute commitment to your God and Saviour. In our fellowship, we're blessed to have many marriages that have been thriving for 30, 40, 50, even 60 years. I believe if you ask those people, you will find enduring relationship is not all about froth and nonsense. Although these things are good, sometimes a long and happy marriage involves utter commitment and deep servant-hearted passion. It is often so deeply held that words can't express it. Only silence will do. But it is foundational to everything in that relationship. We gather around the communion table this morning to share in a meal that reminds us of the extent of God's love for us. He gave his life for you and for me. His life he gave. Let's not be like the church in Laodicea, lukewarm and self-satisfied, unconcerned about God or really anybody else. Let's take a moment of silence now, unhurried, to ask God to open our eyes to the truth, to fill our hearts afresh with his Holy Spirit and to reignite in us a real passion for his name. Our 